Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, welcome again to the Rashi Shir, which is still remotely, and we are up to Perak Yadalad Pasuk Gimel. So, what Perak Yadalad is about is the war, which we colloquially call the war between the four kings and the five kings. That's because there were four kings against five kings. Although actually it's a bit more complicated than that, as we will soon see. And we already did learn Perak Aleph and uh, Pasuk Aleph and Pasuk Bet, which listed the kings. We talked about Rashi's comment on that last week. And now we get to Pasuk Gimel, which says, Kol Eila Chavru El Emek Hasidim, Hu Yam Hamerach. So all of these, i.e., all the kings, all nine kings and their armies, joined together to Emek Hasidim. So Emek means valley. Sidim will wait for Rashi to explain. And Rashi, the Kapasuk also says, Hu Yam Hamelach. That is Yam Hamelach. So Rashi says on Emek Hasidim, Kach Shemo. That is its name. As opposed to just meaning the valley of fields. Now Sidim is not the usual plural of Sadeh, meaning field, but it is occasionally used. Um, I forget where, but elsewhere it is. It does, we do find it somewhere in Tanakh, in that the in that male form. Um, so that's why it's not totally uh, implausible, but it means fields. So Rashi says it doesn't mean valley of fields, but that's its name. It's called Emek Hasidim, and perhaps the reason is everything in the Torah is coming to give us information. Uh, which we wouldn't have worked out otherwise. So this Pasuk is telling us where they gathered. If it just meant a valley of fields, then we wouldn't know which valley, because lots of valleys have fields in them. So Rashi says, Emek Hasidim, Kach Shemo. And now he explains why it gets that name. Al Shem Shahayu Bo Sadot Harbeh. Because there were in it many fields. So yes, at the end of the day, it means the valley of fields. But nevertheless, it's got a particular name. It's a particular valley. And that's what Rashi is telling us. And then the Pasuk says about this valley, Hu Yam Hamelach. Now, the, we might work out the answer. We know a little bit about the history of the region that we're talking about, that the Dead Sea wasn't always the Dead Sea. Um, but the, the basic uh, Pasuk presents a problem. If it's a valley, how can it be a sea? And who Yam Hamelach implies the valley and the sea are the same thing, which of course doesn't really make sense. So Rashi gives two answers. And he says, Hu Yam Hamelach, Laachar Zaman Nimshach Hayam Latocho, Yam Hamelach. After a time, the sea was drawn into it and it became Yam Hamelach. So the region that today we call the Dead Sea became wet and sea-like because the sea was drawn into it. And then Rashi gives another explanation. And the Midrash says, and this is from Bereshit Rabbah, the rocks cracked around it, and the streams of water were drawn into it. So first Rashi, which he doesn't say explicitly, but by, by, by elimination, it's the Pshat, is that the sea was drawn into this area. The second Pshat, which he calls the Midrash, is that the rocks around it split and suddenly it became wet and full of seawater. So what's the difference between these two? Now, I remember, and I've, I've, I've mentioned a few times that I've had this chut to learn from the Chambalevitz, but actually what I'm going to tell you wasn't directly from her, it was from one of her Talmidim, that it's always good to try and ask, what's the single point of difference between two explanations, between two Mepharshim or between two Pshatim in Rashi, for instance? Now, I'm not saying we've done this all the time, but here I think it works quite well. What is the single point of difference between these two? And the answer is to that question, was the sea somewhere else and then moved into Yam HaMelech? Or did Yam HaMelech, sorry, did Emek Hasidim turn into the sea. That's the difference between these two explanations of Rashi. So for the first one, the sea was somewhere else. 
And then the sea moved into Emek HaSidim and it became called Yam HaMelech. But it was always a sea. I mean, there was a sea and the sea moved, as it were. According to the second explanation, the area turned into Yam HaMelech. Now, why do we need each explanation? Well, the Peshat is the Peshat and it makes more sense. And it's hard to say to, to bring some sort of miraculous supernatural answer. But the advantage of the second answer is it really fits the words Emek HaSidim who Yam HaMelech. Because according to the first answer, as I've explained, the sea was something else, and then the sea moved. According to the second answer, Emek HaSidim and Yam HaMelech are the same thing. They just happen to be differentiated in time. First it was Emek HaSidim, and then the, the, the rocks cracked, and it became Yam HaMelech. So I think that's the reason why Rashi brings two explanations there. One is a better for the Pshat, because it's, it's more understandable, but the other actually fits the words better, Emek Hasidim Hu Yam HaMelech. Then we say in Pasuk Dalet, Shteim Esrei Shana Avdu Et Kardala Omer, for 12 years they served Kardala Omer, Ushlosh Esrei Shana Maradu, and 13 years they rebelled, and I'm gonna go on a little bit, and in the 14th year, and the kings with him came. So we'll come back to that, but there's a reason that I want to see Pasuk Hay as the direct continuation of Pasuk Dalad. So first of all, in Pasuk Dalad, it says, Rashi says, These five kings served Kadala Omer. Now, what's the problem here? Why does Rashi have to say these five kings? Now, if we look very carefully at Pasuk Dalet, for 12 years, they served Kadala Omer. Now, Kadala Omer, just remember, was one of the four kings. There were four kings. Uh, Amraphel, whom Rashi identified was, was, uh, as uh, Nimrod, was one. Kadala Omer was another. So there were four kings of which Kadala Omer was one. Now, who, what is the subject of Avdu? They served. Who is it who served? Before we get to Rashi, who is it who served? Now, we don't see a, a, a noun to be the subject of Avdu. So therefore, it must be the subject of the previous verb who has been identified. So what's the previous verb? The previous verb is in Pasigimu. Chavru. They got together. Who got together? So the opening two words of Pasuk Gimel are kol eila, all these, all these what? All these kings. How many kings? Nine kings. The five and the four all got together. That's what Pasuk Gimel says. And then Pasuk Dalet says, they, and we don't know who they are, served Kadalome for 12 years. So without Rashi, what might we think that they refers to? The other eight kings. They all got together and they served Kadala Omer. So it could be read as eight kings served Kadala Omer. In order to disabuse us of that understanding, which is actually the logical understanding based on the simple grammar, Rashi says, who was it who served for 12 years? Chamisha Malachim Halalu. These five kings. So don't think it was eight against one it was five against four. And we'll see in a minute why Kadala Omer is the only one mentioned of the four. Now, in Pasuk Hay, it says, Uba Arba Esrei Shana. Now, I have to say, before we go into Rashi and understand why Rashi says what he says, um, Pasuk Dalad says, they served for 12 years, and in the 13 years they rebelled, and the 14 years there was a war. And it's very natural to read it as they served for 12 years, and then in the 13th year, they um, rebelled, and in the 14th year, there was a war. It sounds plausible, and the numbers sort of fo follow consecutively, and it sounds like there was a rebellion, and the rebellion was immediately put down, or at least in the next year, by the four kings coming back to beat up the five kings. So 12, 13, 14 sound like consecutive numbers. And that's how some of Portion read it. But Rashi doesn't. Rashi and Pasuk Hay 
One word. And Rashi says that means in the 14th year of their rebellion. And therefore, the chronology is 12 years of serving, 13 years of rebelling, 25 altogether. And then in the 14th year of rebellion, i.e. the 26th year since the story began, then there was a war. So if the numbers 12, 13, 14 are consecutive, but that's purely coincidental because they were serving for 12 years, then there was 13 years of rebellion. And in the 14th year of the rebellion, the war happened. So uh, on the one hand, uh, we've lost the, the nice consecutive numbers, 12, 13, 14. And on the, uh, it's also the case that it just seems perhaps uh, unlikely that a rebellion would go on for 13 years before the four kings then took charge again it seems clear these four kings are very powerful so you, you wonder why they waited 13 years to fight back but rashi says they did now why does rashi say that and actually it's not hard to see because if it had said if it had meant like i suggested 12 years of serving in the 13th year they rebelled in the 14th year the four kings fought back then we would expect exactly the same grammatical structure for in the 13th year and in the 14th year, but we don't have that. In Pasuk Dalad, shana maradu. Pasuk hey, uba, uba arba asrei shana. So Pasuk hey, in the 14th year, the bet is there to tell you in the 14th year, but it doesn't say in the 13th year in Pasuk Dalad. It just says ushloshesrei shana, which means 13 years. And I have to say, you know, once you see it like that, then you realize Rashi is the only possible shot. Rashi's spot on. It doesn't say in the 13th year. It says for 13 years. There's no shana. And conversely, it does say in the 14th year. So that is perhaps, everything's perhaps, why Rashi is clear to say that there were 13 years of rebellion, because that's what shana means. And then the war started in the 14th year of the rebellion. So what happened in the 14th year? So Pasuk Hay, again from the top. Uba Arba Esreshana Ba Kardala Omer Ito Came Kardala Omer and the kings who were with him. So before we finish the Pasuk, let's just look at Rashi on that. So the obvious problem is if it's four kings together, why does it mention one of them and the other three like as if they were a supporting act? So Rashi explains that. Barakadala Omer, Lefi Shahu Haya Nichnas Because he was the one who did the work, literally, it is an idiom here which we have to translate and then explain, he entered into the thickest part of the beam. What does it mean, into the thickest part of the beam? What it means is, if a group of people are carrying a beam, which is of varying thickness, then the person who does most of the work will be the one at the thickest part of the beam who's carrying that weight on his or her shoulders. So it's an idiomatic phrase that means Kadala Omer did most of the work. And that is why he is named and the other kings are just with him. And in order to spell out exactly who are the kings, and again, to show that it's four against five, Rashi says, Hamalachim, Elu Shalosha Malachim. These are the three Malachim. See, the Torah doesn't number them. The Torah doesn't quantify how many kings. Rashi, a little bit like he did in Pasuk Dalad, has to tell you, to make clear that it's five against four, and it's important that it's five against four, as Rashi would explain in a little while. So it's not just giving you the history, important though that is, but there's Musa, there's something that we can learn from the fact that it was five against four, as we will do soon. So because the Torah doesn't tell you how many kings were with Kadala Omer, so you might think, again, these eight were divided, uh, or uh, sorry, these nine were divided four, five, five, four, six, three, three, six, Rashi points out, but the kings who were with Kadal Omer were the other three. But stress, but it's four against five. Then the Pasuk goes on. And we have these obscure details, which we don't recall much after we read them until we do 
mention them again far away elsewhere in the Chumash. What it says is these kings, so it's the four kings, Vayaku, I'm reading the Pasuk, uh, Pasuk hey, Vayaku et Rafaim, Ashtarot Karnaim, they smote, they struck the, the people called the Rafaim in Ashtarot Kanaim, that's where they did it. Ve'et ha-zuzim ba-ham, and the zuzim they uh, smote in a place called Ham. Ve'et ha-aimim ba-shaveh kiryatayim. And they smote the aimim in shaveh kiryatayim. So we're being told that there was a lot of fighting going on. And these four kings, before they even got onto the five kings who were listed in Pasavet, they smoked various other people, Raphaim and Zuzim and Amim. Rashi says on the Zuzim, Haim Zamzumim. They are Zamzumim. Why does Rashi have to say this? The answer is found in Sefer Devarim. Because in Sefer Devarim, in Perak Bet, when Moshe is listing the tribes who live around the land of Israel, whom the Bnei Israel were encountering on their way into Israel, um, we have a reference in Perak Bet Pasuk Yud to Ha'emim. And what do we know about the Amim? Am Gadol Varav, Varam Ka'anakim. The Amim were a people who were great and mighty and big like giants. And after the Amim, this is Devarim Perak Bet, we've just read Pasuk Yud, now we read Pasuk Yud Aleph. Rafaim Yecheshvu Afheim. The Rafaim were also considered Ka'anakim like giants. And then in Pasuk Kaf Aleph, Uh, so we've met Rafaim and we've met Amim. Whom haven't we met? Ah, here we are. Pasuk Kaf. Sorry, Bet Kaf. And there it says, Eretz Rafaim Techashev Avhi. The land of Rafaim was also considered Rafaim Yoshvusham Lifnim. Uh, the Rafaim lived there previously, but Amonim Yikrulahem Zamzumim. And the Amonim called them Zamzumim. And in Pasuk Kafala, if we learn about these Zamzumim, Am Gadol Varav Varam Ka'anakim. They were a people big and many and big, mighty like giants. So I hope you can see what I was doing there. We see in Devarim Peribet a reference to Amim and a reference to Rafaim and the reference to Zumzumim. But what we have in our Pasuk is a reference to Rafaim and Amim and Zuzim. What's the problem? Who were the Zuzim? We know who the Rafaim are because they're mentioned in the Barim. We know who the Amim are because they're mentioned in the Barim. But what about the Zuzim? So Rashi tells us that the Zuzim here are the same as the Zamzumim there. But that's not the whole pop story. Because, as we will see, it's important, well, I'll tell you now, it's important we understand how strong the four kings were. And we're going to see a little bit later that even though the four kings were very strong, Avraham did not desist from going against them in order to save Lot. Because Lot, if you don't know the story, was kidnapped by the four kings, and Avraham goes to battle to save him. And he goes against the four kings all by himself, or with Eliezer, or maybe with a small army, uh, even though these four kings were very mighty. How do we know they were very mighty? because they smote and beat three nations who themselves were giants. And how do we know they were giants? Because we're told the Rephaim were giants, and we're told the Amim were giants. We're told the Zumzumim were giants. So Rashi has to say that the Zuzim are the same as the Zumzumim to tell you that they were all giants. And how, what does that tell you about the four kings, how powerful they were, to beat these three nations, each one of whom was giants. Now, I've told you what we can learn from this and how it relates to Abraham, but we must learn something because otherwise we don't need these details. The Torah is not a history book. The Torah is there to tell us things that we need to know. And really, from here onwards, from Perak Yudbet onwards, we're learning about the history of the Jewish people, in particular, the Avot, 
So it, it's reasonable to say, but if it doesn't tell us something about Abraham, it shouldn't be there. So these details about whom the four kings smote must relate somehow to Abraham. So we've explained, but it tells us how great Abraham was if he went to fight against these four kings who had destroyed mighty nations. In order to understand that, we need to know that the nations were mighty. So we need to know that the Zumzumim match up with, sorry, the Zuzim match up with the Zumzumim in the Barim Perabeth, Hasakab Olaf, where they are described as giants. That is what Rashi is doing with that two-word little Rashi. And now we go on to Pasuk Vav. And it says, Ve'et ha'chori v'hararam se'ir. And the chori, now we know who they are, because uh, they're mentioned elsewhere in the Barim, um, and in fact, in the Midbar and lots of places. And they were ve'hararam. We'll leave that to Rashi to translate. Se'ir, which is also known as Se'ir. Ad el paran, asher al hamidbar. Rashi is going to talk about those geographical references as well. But first we get a grammar lesson from Rashi about the word vahararam. And, and we'll see from the grammar comes out an important point. So let's what I mean is, I'm sorry, no, I preceded that. The grammar lesson is going to come later in Pasuk Yud. Sorry, I was a bit premature there. The grammar lesson is going to come in Pasuk Yud. So, Bahararam, says Rashi, means Bahar Shalahem, their mountain. Um, it is a simple grammar point. This isn't very exciting, this one. I was thinking of a more exciting one. Bahararam, Bahar Shalahem. Rashi has explained a letter, a letter which you might be surprised at. Which letter? The second Resh. We know what Har is, and we know what Shalahem means, their their mountain and you can either say something shalahem or you can put a mem on the end of the word and it achieves the same effect so what rashi has to tell you is hararam means har shalahem because shalahem sorry because you'd be surprised by the extra resh and rashi is telling you that when you have the word har which means mountain and then it takes a suffix then it can double the letter resh so the word Bahararam does not mean their Harar, hey Reish Reish, but actually means their Har, their hey Reish. And then um, they get chased to El Paran. Now Rashi points out that the Targum translates this as Meshar. The El Paran is translated as, um, if you look in the Targum of Pasat Vav, <coughs> Ad Meshar Paran. Now, the word meshar in Aramaic means plain, P-L-A-I-N, um, as in plains of this place and plains of that place. And Rashi makes a point. We actually saw this, this particular Rashi before because we used it to explain something that was going on earlier. But here it is. Rashi says, El-Baran Katalgumo Meshar. It is translated as meshar. So El-Baran means the plain of Paran. However, Rashi is going to point out that lots of different words are translated by the Targum as Mesha. We'll go out to have a list of them. And Rashi's going to explain why they're all translated in the same way, even though there are many different words. And he says, The word El is not the Hebrew for plain, which is an Aramaic Mesha. That's not what's happening here. Onkelos is not saying, El equals translation of Mesha, but rather Ela, says Rashi, but Mesha shall Paran, the plain of Paran, El Shemo, its name was El. So the word El is a proper name. It's the name of the plain which was in Paran. And then he goes through other examples of plains which are translated by the Targum as Mesha, but they have different names. So this was, we met this before, Elone Mamre. And Targum translate, we translate that into English as the plains of Mamre. And the Targum there in translated as Meshar Mamre. But that's not because Elone is the translation of Mesha, but rather Elone was the name, the proper name of the plain of Mamre. 
ושל ירדן כיכר שמו. So we met כיכר ירדן, which was also translated as the target, by the target by the word Mesha, which means plains of the Jordan. But that's because the word כיכר was the name of the plain of the Jordan. ושל שיטים אבל שמו. There's another place called אבל שיטים, which is also translated in the same way by the Targum. And the plain of Shittim was called Avel. V'chein Baal Gad, Baal Shemo. And similarly, the Baal Gad in Yehoshua, also translated as the plain of God, because it's called Baal. V'chulam metorgamin Mesha. And every one of them is translated by the Targum as Mesha. V'chol echad Shemo alav. And each one has its own individual name. So every time I say, I think this Rashi is actually quite straightforward. I say it with a caveat. There's probably layers of meaning which I haven't perceived, but I think it certainly can be understood in a simple way. The problem is you have all these places and they're all translated as plain, but they're all different words. Says Rashi, that's because they're all the names of the plain. They're not translations of the word plain. That's why there's a number of different words which are translated in that way. And then he says, Al-Hamidbar. So if we, the Pasuk, seemed the long ago, since we were reading the Pasuk, Ad El Paran Asher Al Hamidbar. So what does Al Hamidbar mean? On the desert. Now, uh, in a very sort of simple and childish way, that sounds like El Paran is like on top of the desert. There's the desert, and El Paran is on top. Well, it doesn't have to mean that. But it could mean El Paran is like above the desert, like there's a slope that goes down from El Paran down to where the desert is. But we have no indication that El Paran was a high art place. On the contrary, what type of geographical feature was El Paran? Well, we've just spent several lines of Rashi explaining that it was a plain. It wasn't a mountain. It wasn't some, uh, uh, some vertical height above the desert. So we're stuck with what does it mean, Al Hamidbar, which sounds like on the desert or above the desert. And yet El Paran, we just said, was a plain. So it's not going to be above the desert. So Rashi says, Etzel Hamidbar, next to the Midbar. So the word Al Hamidbar means next to the desert. Now that is not the usual explanation of the word Al. Al sounds like on top or above. So how can Rashi just say it means next to? So Rashi can, because Rashi has a precedent. It hasn't actually happened in the Torah yet, but it's a, another example that we can see the word Al means next to. And he says, So in Bamidba Perik Bet Pasuk Kaf, where it describes the arrangement of the Dagalim, the flags and the groupings of each tribe, it says there was the tribe of Ephraim, and Alav was the tribe of Manasseh. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean the tribe of Manasseh was on top of the tribe of Ephraim? Of course not. It means, and it can only mean, that the tribe of Manasseh was next to the tribe of Ephraim. So we see, and Rashi uses this example over and over again to justify when Al does not mean on top, it means next to. So we see from Bamidbar that Al can mean next to. So Rashi says that's what it means here. El Paran was not on top of the desert, it was next to the desert. Continuing the geography, that theme continues into Pasuk Zion, where it says, Vayashuvu, they returned, that means the victorious kings, Vayavau, and they came, El Ein Mishpat, to a place called Ein Mishpat, He Kadesh, it is Kadesh. Vayaku, et kol sedei and they smote all the field of the Amalekites, Vagam et Hamori, and also the Emirates who lived in Chatzatson Tamar. So there's a lot of things to say. And we start with Rashi on Ein Mishpat Hi Kadesh. Rashi says, Al Shem Ha'atit. This is named after an event that's going to happen in the future. Now it happens, by the way. The Torah is. Uh, anachronistic in the sense that it refers to places by their future name based on some future event that will happen there. So that's not a, a bad thing, but what, means, what it means is when that happened, Rashi has to explain. Rashi has to say, listen guys, 
even though it uh, hasn't happened yet, the Torah is using the name that is going to be relevant to it later on because of something we're going to learn about later. So what is it that Ein Mishpat refers to that something's going to happen in the future? Sha'atidim Moshe Ba'aron Lehishafet Shon that in the future Moshe and Aaron are going to be judged there Al Iske Otoha Ayin about the matter of that Ayin which is a well Vahem Mei Meriva and that's a reference to Mei Meriva the waters of Meriva i.e. when Moshe struck the rock so Moshe strikes the rock Moshe and Aaron are judged about the well, and they're given a judgment, and in mishpat, well of judgment. Now, why does Rashi have to say this? And, and I think the consensus is, the answer is because of the Kadesh. Now, Kadesh is a place that we know about. We who've read the whole Torah. You can't start reading the Torah until you've read the whole Torah, and you know how it keeps proper referencing itself. And if you don't, Rashi will find that out. But we know all about Kadesh. Kadesh is a place where the Jews went to in the desert. It was part of their journey. It was a significant part of their journey. And we read in Pashat Chukat that it was in Kadesh that Moshe hit the rock and was punished. Uh, we'll stick with Rashi who says the punishment was for hitting the rock. There's many other interpretations. But uh, Rashi here said, he doesn't actually say they hit the rock, but they were judged because of the well in Meimariba. So Rashi says, if it's called Kadesh, and we know what happened in Kadesh, then we can match up Ein Mishpat with what happened in Kadesh. Having said that, Rashi clearly is not entirely happy with the idea that this is named after something in the future. I said we can do it, and according to Rashi, we do do it. But I think Rashi brings a second interpretation because of a certain ambivalence about whether it is shut to say it's named after something in the future. So he gives an alternative explanation, or rather he quotes Onkelos, but he calls Onkelos's translation Kapshuto. He says for Onkelos, Taragomo Kapshuto. Onkelos translates it as uh, pshat, as the simple meaning. Um, what Onkelos calls it is Mesha Pilug Dina. Mesha we know means play. Pilug means division, or, or uh, I suppose, well, the next word is dina, which means judgment. So it's where people divide, and then they vote, and then they make a judgment. That's how Onkelos translates it. And Rashi doesn't go for word for word. He doesn't repeat the word for word for Onkelos, but he says what it means is, Mokom shahayu b'nei hamadina mitkabtsim sham l'kol mishpat. It was the place where the people of that country would gather there for all their judgments. Ein mishpat, probably, although we don't say, we don't know for sure, but ein as in eon, as in study, as in analysis. So it doesn't mean um, well, according to the second explanation, it means eon, eon mishpat, analysis, uh, investigation in order to make a judgment. So Rashi here, he brings it in a slightly uh, peculiar way. He says, doesn't say this is the Bashat. He says this is what the Targum brings it as, but he does say the Targum translates it according to the Bashat. So it sounds like he's saying this is the Bashat. And the Bashat is that it's the place where people gather for judgment. Problem with that interpretation is it doesn't explain the role of Kadesh, which is the location of a Mishpat. And Kadesh is a place we know. And that perhaps is why he needs the first explanation which relates this Kadesh to the Kadesh we know where Moshe hit the rock. Problem with the first explanation is it's Hashem Ha'atid. It's anachronistic because Moshe hasn't hit any rock yet. So you might have a problem with why it should be called a Mishpat at this time. Having said that, I'm not entirely comfortable with what I just said because when it comes to the next words of Rashi, Sadei Ha'emelaki, as you'll see, Rashi doesn't really have much problem when he says, Adayin no lo nolad Amalek. Amalek hasn't yet been born. The Nikra Alshem Ha'atid. And this is called based on the name of the future. How do we know Amalek hadn't been born? Because Amalek was the grandson of Esau, and Esau was the grandson of Abraham. And Abraham hasn't got any children yet, let alone great great grandchildren. So clearly, 
Amalek hasn't been born. Maybe, to defend the analysis I just gave before, when there's no alternative for saying Tashem Ha'atid, then Rashi isn't all that bothered. If it clearly, in this case, when it refers to the Amalekites, who clearly haven't yet been born, let alone become a nation, then it must be Tashem Ha'atid. There is no other explanation, and Rashi says it's Tashem Ha'atid. Then Rashi tells you, the Chatzatzon Tamar is who, sorry, he Ein Gedi. This is Ein Gedi. Chatzatzon Tamar is Ein Gedi. Ein Gedi, we might know, is a place we've all been to do the teal and jump in the waterfall if that's what takes your fancy. Everyone knows Ein Gedi. You do it on the same day as Masada, etc. And that is another name for Chatzatzon Tamar. So we can ask two related questions on this Russia. Number one, how does Rashi know that it's the same as Ein Gedi? And number two, why does Rashi feel the need to tell us? And the two can be answered, and in fact, it's no secret, because the next words of Rashi say, Nikra Malay the Divre Hayomim the Yehoshaphat. This is a full Pasuk. In other words, it's a comprehensive, clear Pasuk in Divre Hayomim, Divre Hayomim Bet, Herakaf Pasuk Bet, in relation to Yehoshaphat. And there it says, uh, and I quote, so a message came to Yehoshaphat and they said, the enemies come from, they are now in Chatzatzon Tamar, that is Ein Gedi. So, we're more familiar with Ein Gedi. It's mentioned in the journeys of the Bnei Israel in Pashas Matos. Um, and so, if, we, we, if it's the same as Engedi, Rashi wants to tell us it's the same as Engedi, and we know it's the same as Engedi because we're explicitly told that in Divrei Hayyam. Now, we go on to Pasuk Chet, on which there's no Rashi, but we'll read it anyway. And those five kings came out, and we talked about Pasachet in relation to Pasachet. We used it to prove that the king of um, Bela, sorry, um, the king of Goyim, Goyim was a place and not a. Are we missing a king? Saddam, Amara, uh, Adama. Sorry, okay, we've got five kings, and they're all named by their places. They're not given their names, that's right, sorry, except Bella. The other, in Pasuk Bet, they were named, and Rashi darshaned each one of their names as something bad. And we said, why does Rashi see their names as something to darshan rather than just what their names were? And the answer was, in Pasuk Bet, we don't get any names, so we don't actually need the names of these individual kings, and that's why Rashi saw them in Pasuk Bet as something special to learn from. Anyway. So here these five kings come out. And they made war with them in Emek Hasidim. So who's them? Well, them is the people in Pasuk Hay. That's the last time we had a subject. And that was Kardala Omer and the kings who were with him. And Rashi made the point, you'll remember in Pasuk Hay, but that was three other kings. So there were four kings with Kardala Omer. And now we know that the five kings mentioned in Pasuk Chet are making war with the four kings mentioned in Pasuk A. And who were they in Pasuk Tet? Et Kadala Omer Melech Elim, the Tidal Melech Goyim. Sorry, that's what I was thinking of. But Goyim, Rashi proved in Pasuk Aleph, was the name of a place and doesn't just mean nations because all the other kings are given with their place. But Amraphel Melech Shinar, so the five in Pasuk Hay made war with the four in Pasuk Tet. And just in case you can't count, the Torah says four kings against the five. Ah, most of us can count. And even if we can't, we can work it out. So why does the Torah have to say four kings against the five? Says Rashi, Arba Malachim. And even so, the minority were victorious. 
because we're about to see, Russia obviously isn't worried about giving us a spoiler, but the four kings are going to beat the five kings. So we see that the four kings must have been really strong. And as I said, in Pasuk Hay, when we talk about the nations whom they smote, the Raphaim, the Amy, the Zuzim, that also tells us how strong were the vanquished, which means how super strong were the victors. But Rashi says here, Arba Malachim et ha given that we can count for ourselves, Rashi just tells us that the minority were victorious. To tell you that they were very strong. The And even so, Abraham did not refrain from chasing after them. And this is the point. This is what it's all been leading up to. Because all the details we've had so far, these kings, four or five other people, funny names, it's all to tell you about Abraham. And says Rashi, the Torah is spelling out how mighty were these four kings, that they were able to beat five kings, which itself will then boost our understanding of Abraham's valor and Abraham's concern to rescue his nephew. Uh, and he will go out and battle against these four very strong kings. Now, we learn a bit more about the battle, or rather the field of battle, literally. Pasuk Yud says for Amek Hasidim. Rav, sorry, can I ask a question quickly on that? Um, on Pasuk Tet, the order of the kings is different to Pasuk Aleph, where it lists them, where Nimrod or Amraphel is first, yes. um, and the order is completely different. Whereas in Pasuk Chet, the order is the exact same as the five kings as they were presented in Pasuk Bet. Just wondered if there's anything about that. So, um, it's a good question. All I can do is relay, uh, refer you to Rashi on Pasuk Hay, which is where Kadala Omer gets his first mention as, as the primary, as the first of the kings. And Rashi tells you why. He took the biggest part of the load. So it could be that Rashi's saying there was a change compared to Pasuk Aleph. Yeah. In Pasuk Aleph, Amraphel was, was number one, but when it came to actually doing the stuff, Karda Omer did more of the work. And if I'm right, and I think I might be, that's why Amraphel is pushed down to number three. Uh, I'm sure there is significance. Rashi does believe that lists, the order in which people are listed is significant. He mentions this many times. Um, that I can think of. Um, so it sounds like Karda Omer comes first because he did most of the work, which, in, and I'm by, by sort of stretching that idea that. Uh, Amraphel, he who is Nimrod, does not do his fair share, and that's why he's pushed down to number three. That's what I think might be the answer to your question. Thank you. Now, Pasuk Yud, the Emek Hasidim, the Erot, the Erot Chimar, the Valley of Hasidim, which is the name of the place, as Rashi says, but it's called that because there were many fields, was Berot, Berot Chimar. Now, Chimar is pitch or bitumen. What's Be'erot Be'erot? So Rashi says, Be'erot Harber Hayu Sham. Two things there are significant. Number one, Be'erot Be'erot means Be'erot Haber. Pits. Be'er. So Be'erot Be'erot, which means pits, pits. Rashi explains means lots of pits. Okay, so we know why that we now understand the doubled word. But the words Hayu Sham are also very significant. Because without the Hayushan, <clears throat> what we would have thought of is the Emek Hasidim was entirely pits of bitumen. That's all there was. There was no space between them. It was just one big lot of pits. But Rashi says Hayushan means there were pits there, but they weren't the totality. There were other bits which weren't pits, which is going to make sense for what's going to happen in a minute. So Hayushan means there were pits there. They took from there ground, earth, to make cement, shell binyan, for the building. So they were pulled out um, pits from where they'd taken the earth, and they take the earth away and they make stuff with it. So what you're left with are big, 
wholeness. That's Rashi's first shot. And then he says, um, And the Midrash says, That the pit, the cement, was needed, was, was like put together in the very pits. So first explanation, which is the shot, is the pits were there because all their earth was taken out. The second explanation is they were pits of chemar, because they were actually the chemar, which is the pit, which is the cement, was actually made in the pits. Now, the story is going to carry on. This is crucial. This is the introduction to the next thing that Rashi is going to say. But again, we can ask the same, we can ask the same question, uh, but I suggest in the name of Hamalevitz. What's the key difference? The key difference is, what does it mean, Be'erot Chemar? Pits of cement, pits of bitumen. So I don't know enough about road molting to know exactly if cement and bitumen are the same thing, but you get the idea. According to the first explanation, they were empty pits. There was nothing in them, because the material was removed in order to make the Chemar as part of a process. According to the second explanation, the pits weren't empty at all. They were full of squelchy, mushy cement. And I stress the squelchy and mushy because of what's going to come next. Now, it's, uh, well, what's going to, uh, let's read what Rashi says. And a miracle was done for the king of Sodom. Now, I've, I've missed a bit. Uh, let, let's read the rest of Pasuk Yod. I'll go back to the beginning of Pasuk Yod, then we'll go back to the Rashi. And the kings of Sodom and Amorah fled, and they fell there. And the others, the remainders, fled to the mountain. Um, we may not have time, but the long Rashi that I promised you on grammar is going to explain the word Hera. Anyway, they're falling in this field. So it's what's not said absolutely explicitly, but it's pretty clear. They fall in the pits. They fall in the hole. According to the first explanation, they fall in the hole, which is probably a bit uncomfortable, but it's no big deal. They can come out of a hole. People can fall in a hole, they can climb out of a hole. According to the second explanation, they fall into not an empty hole, but a hole full of squelchy, mushy cement. And if you fall into a hole of squelchy, mushy cement, you don't come out. You get stuck in the cement. And yet, later on, we see that Melech Saddam came out. We will see that later on, and then he offers a deal to Abraham, etc. But we'll see that when it comes. But meanwhile, he's fallen into the pit, and we know later on he's going to come out. So according to the second explanation, the pit is not just awkward because you have to climb out. The pit is fatal because you're going to get swallowed up by the cement. Says Rashi, continuing the second explanation, A miracle was done for the king of Saddam that he came out from there. Now, why does he deserve a miracle? Okay, so the first point is, given the second explanation, given that the king of Saddam went into the pit, but later on came out, that's a miracle. And the miracle is important. But why is the miracle important? Why do we need Hashem? Why does Hashem need to do a miracle for Melech Saddam of all people who's not a nice person? And why do we need to know about it? Says Rashi, because there were amongst the nations, there were people who did not believe that Abraham was saved from Or Kastim. From the fiery furnace. So we know all about the fiery furnace, even though it's not in the Chumash, it is in the Rashi, and it's pretty sort of uh, muskam, it's pretty accepted amongst all the Mephoshim that it happened, that Avram was thrown into the fiery furnace and miraculously he came out. And that was like the start of Avram's mission to the world. But there were people who didn't believe it. And when this one, i.e. Melech Saddam, came out from the uh, bitumen from the cement, they believed in Abraham retroactively. They saw that Melech Saddam came out miraculously, so they believed that Abraham came out miraculously. So Hashem arranged this miracle to reinforce the belief in Abraham.
there is a huge question here. Both the Mizrahi and the Maharal ask this question. And they say, what's going on here? If you see Abraham saved from a fiery furnace, you might think, oh, that's pretty good. Abraham is obviously one of the good guys. He believes in Hashem. That's why Hashem saves him. Now we understand Hashem looks after people who follow him. But Melech Saddam is the precise antithesis. He is the anti-Abraham, or maybe Nimrod's the anti-Abraham, but Melech Saddam does a good impression of being the anti-Abraham. He is not a tzaddik. He is not Bayikrab Shem Hashem. He is not proclaiming Hashem's name in the world. So when people see that he is the recipient of a miracle, surely it's not going to establish the belief in Abraham. On the contrary, turns out good people get miracles done for them, bad people get miracles done for them. There's no God. There's no justice. That's what people would say. That's the question. So the Mizrahi says, and I think it's a bit of a struggle, but it's actually a very interesting idea and perhaps very relevant to our times. He said the problem was people didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe there was anything beyond their nature that they could see and understand for themselves. So when they hear that Abraham saved by a miracle, they don't believe it, not because they don't believe in Abraham, but because they don't believe in miracles. They are of that fixed mindset that if I can't perceive it, if I can't uh, imagine it, it doesn't exist. So when they see where a miracle happens in Melech Saddam, it's not that they're judging, they're understanding that Hashem looks after Sadiqim. They understand that there is such a thing as a miracle. And once they understand that such a thing is a miracle, then they can relate that back to Abraham. And it doesn't really fully answer the question, but it gives us an insight into their psychology. And I think perhaps people today are not so far removed from that mindset. The Maharal says differently. The Maharal says that at the end of the day, this miracle was done for Melech Saddam, not for Melech Saddam, but for Abraham. Because it's important for Abraham that Melech Saddam comes out of the pit and negotiates with him, as we will see later on. So people would have realized that the miracle is all part of the Abraham story. Ultimately, it's all done for Abraham. And that's why they will appreciate when they see the miracle done to Melech Saddam, they'll relate it back to Abraham. Okay. Um, it is now 9.24 and a half, and the problem is the next Rashi is more than a four-minute one. So I think this will be a place to pause. I thank you all for your attendance tonight, and uh, in Yitz Hashem, we will meet again next week, next Sunday at 8.30 Melbourne time. Uh, just before we go, are there any questions, any observations people want to make? Nope. Okay, I will thank you all, and, uh, and good night. Thanks, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi.